If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is a special hour number three. For this edition of the World According to Zig podcast for July 23rd, 2017, my name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. It's not uh, too often when we do an hour number three. It's for only special occasions. And basically, it boils down to this. Whenever there is a uh, reason or an excuse for me to tell one of my classic John Ziegler stories. That's when we do an hour number three, because I don't want to disrupt the the news hour. And you know, occasionally I'll do that if we don't have a, a guest, but we've been very lucky with guests. And this week we have an awesome guest in Glenn Beck. And I hope you've listened to that interview because it's one of the best, if not the best interview I've ever done uh, of any sort. And I, I feel pretty confident saying that, but, um, I have probably five or six stories that are better than anybody else's stories I've ever heard, at least people I know in my life, okay? I would say in no particular order, um, you know, my Sarah Palin story, my Penn State story, which is probably five or six stories in one. Uh, so I'm being, I'm being generous when I say that's just one story. Uh, the story of how I got fired in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, rehired in Los Angeles. That that was a big one. Um, what else? Oh, I got a couple Tiger Woods stories that are off the charts. Uh, but maybe, just maybe, it's up to you to decide this. It's possible that. Uh, the my O.J. Simpson experience is the best story I have in my very strange and very eventful 50-year life. Um, frankly, to me, nothing's ever going to top Penn State, but because Penn State has such a horrible ending, it looks like, I can't say that it's, a, it's the best story because, you know, a happy ending is usually a pretty important element of a great story. Although, after what happened this week, we may be losing our happy ending on OJ. So, regardless of where it ranks in the pantheon of strange John Ziegler stories, I figured that this was the perfect week to 
finally, really for the first time, although I've told parts of the story in the past, especially when I was doing the nationally syndicated weekend show with uh, Leah Brandon, because Leah Brandon was a part of this story. But because of the nature of doing a commercial radio show, it's almost impossible to tell a story this involved without it getting broken up by commercials and little snippets. And you can't tell the whole full story. So because we have a little extra time on the podcast and because this week OJ Simpson had his parole hearing and unfortunately was granted parole, I figured it would be a good time to tell uh, the full feature length uh, John Ziegler, OJ Simpson story. And just so you know, this is very relevant to the parole hearing itself. And I wrote a column, a rather extensive column for Mediate, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about this whole story and how it directly relates to how and why O.J. Simpson got put in prison in the first place. But I want to tell the real full story here, for whatever it's worth, because I think there's some important elements for context. So to start this story... Let's go all the way back to the 1970s. In the 1970s, I was a sports fanatic kid growing up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, when the Eagles still were terrible. Uh, They were my favorite team, but when you're an Eagles fan, you're always looking for other things to root for. And I really liked O.J. Simpson. I I liked his style of running. I liked the Buffalo Bills uniforms. Uh, and you know, OJ just had that charisma. He was fun to watch. And I remember I did a, uh, it was probably grossly inappropriate. I don't even think I knew what the hell I was doing, but for some reason I created a book report where I had done a, uh, uh, very crude rendering of OJ Simpson as my cover photo. So just to give you a sense of the fact that I really liked OJ Simpson. Never never really liked him that much as an announcer, but I thought, okay, you know, he's OJ. So we fast forward to 1994, June, and the first word trickles out, and I'll never forget it, seeing a little tiny blurb on what must have been that Monday morning. Somehow a very tiny blurb must have gotten into the USA Today the Monday after the, the Sunday killings that indicated that Nicole Brown Simpson, the estranged wife of O.J. Simpson, had been murdered along with a male friend. And instantaneously, I'm like, oh, my God, O.J. Simpson killed two people. I didn't know for sure, but I'm like, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Brentwood, California, estranged wife, brutally murdered, male friend. This ain't good. And, of course, the evidence kept coming in, and the more evidence there was, the more obvious it was that O.J. was guilty. And I didn't want this to be the case, but I accepted it, and I became very angered. I especially became very angered once it was clear that O.J. was going to try to create civil division in an effort to try to get off from having brutally killed two people. And let's remember, when he brutally killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman, He left their bodies where the most likely scenario was his two young children who were asleep at the time were going to come down the next morning and find their mother decapitated on their front porch. 
And I've been to the crime scene, and it is an incredibly small area. And there would have been no chance that this didn't happen unless, miraculously, and I, you know, someone heard a Nikita dog wailing and saw the bloodstream and alerted police to what had occurred. So that really pissed me off. And you know, when I put someone on a pedestal, which I hardly ever do anymore, when they let me down, I do not take it well. <laughs> Anyone who knows me, you, you, there's a price to be paid. For, for letting me down. Not just me. I mean, I'm not the point here, but this is just the way I deal, whether it's in my personal life or with public figures. Same thing happened with Tiger Woods, although not obviously to the same level as OJ because Tiger didn't actually kill anybody. So uh, a, a series of events occur after this where um, my mother gets killed in a car accident later that year, in September of that year. So Obviously, this is a massive trauma, and I almost immediately after my mother gets killed in a car accident, I get a job as a TV sportscaster in Raleigh, North Carolina, the Fox affiliate there. And everything's just happening way too fast. I probably should not have taken the job because I was not emotionally ready to move on. Um, but, you know, jobs in broadcasting, especially as a white male and you're a young white male and you look like you're about 18 years old, they don't come around very often. So I took the job and that was a whole nother story because I got thrown into a very weird situation where the guy who brought me down there, the main sports anchor got sick almost immediately. So I'm starting to work seven days a week. And I'm, and you know, I, I'm sure that they didn't really think I was particularly well qualified, mainly because I looked too damn young to be the, the major, the main sports anchor. And the trial is just getting started. And the Bears and the 49ers are playing in a playoff game. And the 49ers, you know, were heavy favorites. They ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. And I um, I made a joke entering the highlights saying that anybody that believed that the Bears had any chance in this game must also believe in Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and O.J. Simpson's innocence. And I didn't think much of it, actually. I thought, doesn't everybody know O.J.'s guilty? I mean, really? But this is, was a, a Fox affiliate, which had about a 30% African-American population. And there were uh, a couple of uh, blank, black anchor people who did not take kindly to this. And, um, and I, remember, <laughs> I remember being confronted about this in the newsroom like a couple days later because I was shocked that this was even an issue. And there was a black female anchor who uh, said to me that I should not have done that. And I, and I said, well, why? I, it's obviously the truth. And she, and she said, well, because there's a lot of people that don't accept that that's the truth. And I said something to the effect, <laughs> I said something to the effect of just because a lot of people choose to remain ignorant shouldn't have any impact on what I say on the air. <laughs> That did not go over particularly well. And then a, a local black columnist who didn't even see what I said, and I'm sure he was tipped off by the black female anchor woman. It's pretty obvious what happened here. He, his name was Barry Saunders. He starts writing about 
how I, and he completely misquotes what I said, which is the first clue he didn't see what I said. He starts making it into somehow a racist issue. That I'm, I'm racist because I'm saying OJ is guilty. I'm like, really? Seriously? Well, long story short, I end up getting fired. Now, this is before the internet. Now, had this had happened in the area of the internet, I would have been internet famous instantaneously. I probably would have gotten another job out of the deal because because somebody would have said, wow, this guy is interesting. <laughs> but not then. This was a bad time for this to happen. So now here I am in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I know nobody. Uh, my long-distance relationship with my long-term girlfriend is is basically ending anyway. My mother's just been killed in a car accident. And OJ's trial is going on, and I actually didn't like the job. I wasn't that pissed that I lost the job, other than the fact that my life was now incredibly boring, other than the ability to play a lot of golf. Um, and I didn't know where my hell my career was going to go. But um, I ended up watching like every second of the trial. In fact, this is how ridiculous I got on the trial. Geraldo Rivera used to do these nightly updates on the trial for CNBC. I would not just watch the Geraldo Rivera update. I would usually watch the rerun as well. Now that's insane. That's it's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, in retrospect, I could never do that today on any subject. Uh, and it's going to sound like I was obsessed. I really wasn't. I was just fascinated that this was actually happening. And as the trial went along, it became clear to me he was going to get acquitted because I had no faith in the jury system. And I could tell that the defense was pulling a lot of bullshit. And even though he was guilty as hell, I could tell that the media was allowing this. See, the media played a a very interesting role in all this. They pretended that OJ might be innocent because they knew that was good for the story and good for ratings. I mean, if they, if they had said, well, this is clear as day, the guy's guilty, it kills all the drama. So they pretended during that whole trial that OJ might really be innocent. They all know. They, every single one of them knew that OJ was guilty as hell. But they pretended not to because it was the greatest story of all time. And so, as fate would have it, one of my golfing buddies in Raleigh, North Carolina, was a guy by the name of Joe Cheshire, who is an attorney, a very prominent attorney in Raleigh. You you may even have heard his name because he ends up, many years later, representing the Duke lacrosse players who were wrongly accused in that rape case. But Joe was a very well-known attorney. And Joe got brought in by Johnny Cochran as, I guess, an auxiliary member of the Dream Team because you may remember that there were those Mark Furman tapes, the tapes that supposedly proved that he was a racist, even though all they were was him basically doing a screenplay and playing a character. But they needed to get the tapes legally out of North Carolina. And Cochran's first effort had failed because the judge, in Joe's words, was a racist who didn't like the fact that this black guy from California was trying to tell him what to do. So they decide to get a good old boy in North Carolina with connections like Joe, and Joe gets the tapes out. Well, in the course of our conversations, Joe openly admits to me, yeah, OJ's guilty. In fact, uh, he says to me during one of our, our golf matches, he says, you know, if OJ gets out and Fred Goldman, the father of Ron Goldman, ends up killing OJ, 
I think I could get him off on jury nullification. I'm like, oh, wow. I mean, and Joe was kind of boasting. He's, a, you know, like a lot of lawyers. He's got a big ego. And, you know, I could get him off on jury nullification. I thought this was rather extraordinary for a guy who was a, a, effectively a member of the dream team of on OJ. He's working on OJ's behalf, talking about how he could get off the guy who killed his client on jury nullification. So I immediately say to him, without dropping, you know, without missing a beat, I said, okay, could you get me off on jury nullification if I killed OJ? And he's like, what? And he looks at the two other guys that were playing with us who I knew better than I knew Joe. And I had already talked with them extensively. They, by the way, they're two, they were two therapists. Uh, and you know, they had been my, my, effectively my, my therapy sessions every Thursday when we played golf. And so they knew all about my, my very rudimentary plan to potentially kill OJ Simpson if he got off on these charges. And they look, they looked at him and he looked back and they're like, no, no, he's serious. He's totally serious. And so Joe was a bit, was a bit understandably taken aback. And uh, I explained to him my plan because I presumed that OJ was going to get acquitted. And, but I did not. It's interesting that I knew that OJ would get acquitted, but I didn't realize that Riviera Country Club would have the balls to kick him out of the club if he got acquitted. Because my whole plan was I was going to move to L.A., I was going to become a caddy at Riviera Country Club, and I was just going to wait. I was just going to wait for the proper opportunity to kill O.J. Simpson. Now, you got to remember, I am very depressed at this point. I'm living alone in North Carolina. My mother's just been killed in a car accident. Uh, I think I'm on, I don't know if I'm on Zoloft at this point, but I'm, I'm soon to be on Zoloft for, for depression. Uh, but to me, this is making perfect sense because I'm thinking, you know what? My life means nothing. I might as well do something productive by getting rid of O.J. Simpson because he deserves to die for what he did, especially what he was doing to the country in the way that his defense was. It's one thing to defend yourself, but when you start with this racist bullshit, when you're the last guy in the goddamn planet that was going to be set up in a racist plot by the LAPD, I'm sorry, no. All right, so... Long story short, uh, OJ does get acquitted, and I decide not to go <laughs> assassinate OJ Simpson. I don't know whether it was the Zoloft or I think I had gotten a new girlfriend. I don't know what it was, whatever it was. And I uh, and also at this point, I had started to get into talk radio because I realized I was way too politically incorrect for sports television. And as a young white male, I realized there was really no hope for me anyway. So I was starting to get the pieces of my life back together a little bit. Uh, And so OJ gets acquitted and I do make a trip to Los Angeles. In fact, I made a trip to Los Angeles to see my old college girlfriend who at the time lived in Manhattan beach. And we did an entire tour. This was just after the acquittal. We did an entire tour of the crime scene and of yeah, we went to eat dinner at Metzaluna Restaurant, which doesn't even exist anymore, which is where Nicole Brown Simpson uh, uh, ate her last meal and where Ron Goldman worked. And uh, we went to, we, we finished at O.J.'s house. And I actually left a letter for O.J. Simpson at his house. Uh, in fact, um, 
I got confronted by somebody, and I we're never quite sure who confronted me. It was a loud, deep African American voice. I think it was security. My friend was so scared out of her mind that she like was ready to leave without me. <laughs> she she didn't really she wasn't really you know she had a real career so she wasn't really into the whole let's get caught you know making a problem at O.J. Simpson's Rockingham Estate scam that I had going on or scheme. So uh, anyway, but I did not see O.J. at that time. <laughs> so my anger towards O.J. never really subsided, but I never did much to act on it uh, until I got uh, fired in Louisville, Kentucky, and then rehired in, here in Southern California in Los Angeles at KFI AM, which at that time was the number one talk station in the country. And so now we're in the early 2000s, 2004, 2005, mid-2000s, and a couple of interesting things happened. And I'm, obviously I'm always, especially in L.A., O.J.'s always a story, and he's still on the loose, but he's not really being accepted into public life. Um, I got involved in the controversy over the book that Judith Regan was going to publish on behalf of of Simpson and played a small role in torpedoing that. By the way, I, somewhere on the internet, there is an amazing interview that Judith Regan did with me where I ambushed her. She interviewed me about my movie, Media Malpractice, and I decided not to talk about Media Malpractice. I decided to talk to her about why she wanted to give a book deal to a double murderer, and she kicks me out of the studio. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, somewhere there's audio that exists of this, and it's hilarious. But Anyway, so the point here is whenever OJ battles came up, I was ready to do warfare. But things really start to get ratcheted up for a couple of reasons. One, as as bizarre fate would have it, I end up dating Nicole, not Nicole. <laughs> I end up dating Kim Goldman, Ron Goldman's sister. And the reason why that happened was because Kim had heard me talking about the case on the air. She lives in Southern California still. And she had emailed me, and one thing led to another, and we got together, and we became very good friends. And we dated fairly seriously for a while, and uh, she, she was a single mom at the time and with a great son. And, you know, we became pretty close. And so, in fact, she would end up attending my wedding, uh, which is a whole other story because my wife – wasn't a big fan uh, of Kim's for somewhat obvious and somewhat not obvious reasons. But I always respected Kim and her dad, Fred, for what they did in trying to make sure there was some semblance of justice here. And that really was the key. Their pursuit of the $33.5 million judgment against Simpson was really the key to how he ended up in prison for this Las Vegas thing. So now this gets us to the chapter that directly revolves around the Las Vegas circumstance and the dominoes that were in place for years before that event that causes O.J. Simpson to be convicted and go to prison. Here's what happens. So, I'm living in Burbank, California in an apartment because I'm trying to, I'm always presuming I'm going to get fired at any moment. So I'm, I'm saving like tons of money. I'm making like $170,000 a year and I'm living in a dirt bag apartment because I know this is going to end at any, at any time. Cause it's, I've just been trained through my career to believe this. So I'm living in an apartment in Burbank and I read in a local newspaper that the 
sports collectibles shop down the corner, like 600 yards from where I live, is going to be hosting the first public O.J. Simpson signing since the acquittal. And I'm like, no fucking way. There is, there is no fucking way this is going to happen. So I immediately marched down to the memorabilia shop, and I talked to the owner. And the owner knew who I was because he was actually in the media too. He was a director at the NBC affiliate in Los Angeles. I said, Benny was his name. I said, Benny, my name's John Ziegler. I'm the evening host at KFI in Los Angeles. I understand that your shop is going to be doing this O.J. Simpson signing. He said, yeah. I said, look, um, we can do this the, the easy way or we can do this the hard way. Y- you, have, you have two choices. You can cancel this. Or you can go ahead and do this over my dead body. Boy, that escalated quickly. And I said to him, look, you don't want option number two. Because I'm going to make your life a living hell. You you will have hundreds of people, if not more, outside your business protesting this. And I will literally... Get down on you, you lit, OJ will have to climb over my body to get into your building. He said, "All right, why don't you talk to the guy who is actually sponsoring this?" I said, "Okay, who is that?" His name is Alfred Beardsley, and he gave me his phone number. Now, Alfred Beardsley is a key name to remember in this saga. So, I call Alfred. Alfred is clearly insane. Alfred is a huge OJ fan. I, I think he pretty much knew OJ had killed two people, but he didn't care. He's a memorabilia guy. He loves OJ, and he just wants to give people a chance to get OJ's autograph. He agrees to come on my show where I berate him for I don't know how long the interview was, but I berate him. I tell him, Alfred, this event is not going to happen, and I will bet you that it's not going to happen. I will bet you $1,000 it's not going to happen. He takes the bet. Well, long story short, I was right. The event was scrubbed. It was canceled because of the pressure that we, and I'm assuming others at KFI also joined in, uh, getting on the bandwagon because, you know, the the station was known as being very anti-O.J. Simpson which was not a real risk to take with the audience. But I digress. So, of course, no one was willing to go out to the lens that I'm willing to go out. Everyone's willing to talk about it on the air, but no one's willing to go out in the field and, you know, really make sure that justice is done. So Alfred uh, ends up sending me a check. Now, I had told him I don't want the money. From the beginning, I said, this bet is not for me. This is for the Goldmans because the Goldmans had basically collected almost nothing from their $33.5 million judgment. I said, make the check out to the gold to Fred Goldman. So he, he sends me a check, and it's only for a hundred bucks, which was a really lame, you know. Oh, I thought it was only a hundred. I didn't know it was a thousand. Oh, bullcrap. Whatever. But I was still, I it still took pride in the fact that I was able to give Fred Goldman the first check, to my knowledge, that I'm aware of that he ever received that was related to the Simpson uh, settlement or not settlement, but judgment. And it really was directly related to the judgment because Alfred Beardsley, this is so important for people to understand. Alfred Beardsley 
was a person who OJ used to help get around that judgment by him being effectively the way to filter cash to OJ through the sale of memorabilia on basically the underground market so that the Goldmans couldn't get to it. Beardsley was helping OJ do this all the way back during the trial. People don't realize that OJ was helped funding his defense team by signing footballs while in jail. That was a scheme set up by his agent, Mike Gilbert. Now, here's something that's really key to understanding what later happens in Las Vegas. Gilbert and Beardsley thought, and I'm sure with good reason, that their payment for helping OJ in this scheme was that OJ had given them memorabilia. Like, for instance, one piece of memorabilia that Beardsley was so proud of that he claimed that he owned, although Gilbert has also claimed that he owned it, was the suit that O.J. Simpson wore when he got acquitted. You know the famous scene, O.J. cheering, giving the fist pump to the jury after he he shockingly gets off and Robert Kardashian is looking like he saw a ghost because he's like, I cannot believe this jury did not understand that my friend killed two people. Anyway, um, but that's key. Because Beardsley thinks that this stuff is his as payment for his help in the scheme. Now, unbeknownst to me at this time, when the Burbank autograph event gets torpedoed, something very critical happened. I did not know that Beardsley had a partner in this. Beardsley's partner was a guy by the name of Thomas Riccio. And when Beardsley and Riccio's event gets torpedoed, it creates a schism between Beardsley and Riccio. Riccio is pissed at Beardsley. He is furious that after all the work that he had done, thinking that he had gotten O.J. Simpson to do a public signing event in Los Angeles, the first one since the acquittal, that it had all gone for naught. Well, according to Beardsley, this schism is directly why, one, the meeting in Las Vegas ends up taking place, and two, why Riccio starts tape recording all of his interactions with Beardsley. And the tape recording is why O.J. Simpson ends up getting convicted and sent to prison. Because without the tape recording, they got nothing. So, I don't know any of this at this time. I'm blissfully naive. All I know is that a second O.J. Simpson autograph session is scheduled for Northridge, California at a, I'm not making this up, a horror convention. A horror convention. And this one is being sponsored by Thomas Riccio, who, again, I don't know his connection to the Burbank event at this point, so I'm naive. I have Riccio on my show. Riccio also says he's not going to cancel. But he says, and this was clearly a setup in retrospect, he says, John, you can have free reign to the whole place. You can do whatever you want. I promise you. You can confront OJ, whatever you want to do. I don't care. I'm just having this event. I don't have an opinion on OJ. Blah, blah, blah. Well, stupidly, I believe him. Because I didn't know anything about Riccio at this point. Well, it turns out Riccio is a convicted felon 
with a very long rap sheet. He's escaped from prison. He's a scam artist. He is literally one of the worst people I have ever met in my life. And it's obvious that he is. I mean, he is, he's a sociopath. He's a horrendous human being. He's an excuse for a human being. He might even be a worse person than OJ, as, just as a human being. Because I'm, I'm always presuming that OJ snapped in a, you know, a fit of insanity. Although, as many times as he beat up Nicole, that was happening quite a bit. So I'm not suggesting OJ's a good person. I just think that Riccio is pure evil. So we go to this event, and my then-news person, Leah Brandon, and my producer, Jason Nathanson, we all go, we get up on a Saturday to go see OJ at the horror convention. And when we show up, there's a small group of LAPD officers there. And we immediately go over there and we say, so has the killer shown up yet? And they say, no, he's not. And then no lie, a black LAPD officer says to us, no, he's not here yet, but we did plant a bloody glove just in case we need one. That's a direct quote from a black LAPD officer, which was pretty much the most hilarious thing he could have possibly said under the circumstances. So we set everything up and we're trying to figure out the best strategy to go after OJ. We're like the Keystone cops, partially because Riccio totally lied to us. He's not helping at all. He's restricting our movements. He's not allowed. Ironically, he's not allowing me to record interviews with the customers who want to get O.J. Simpson's autograph, which would turn out to be ironic when it turns out that Riccio is recording everything. Hell, he might have been recording me at that time, but he, was, he, didn't, want, he didn't want anybody else to be recorded. Uh, and, um, and so when Simpson gets there, I do confront him and try to get off some questions, but his security is keeping me away. He goes up a back alley, he goes upstairs, his goons are blocking me off. I try to go underneath the legs of one of the goons, not very successfully. And so then I reverse course and I realize, okay, I'm not going to get a free shot at OJ in a confrontation situation. So my only other option at this point is to become a kamikaze because I need to disrupt this event because I need to make sure this event never gets duplicated. It's, this is mandatory. This is over the my dead body portion of, of, the, of the plan. So because I'm being blocked from where OJ is going to be doing the autograph signing, I realize the, the only option I have is to block other people from getting to where OJ is going to do the signing. And what ends up happening is, and it's got to remember, it's like 105 degrees outside. There's no air conditioning. People are sweating like pigs. And we're in a closed quarters, and these 300-pound steroid goons are blocking my path, at least three or four of them. And I decide I am going to block everybody else's path by becoming, uh, effectively, to use a football metaphor, uh, O.J. Simpson's fullback. Even though I'm not trying to blow a hole open for him, I'm trying to block him from getting to where he can go to do the autographs. Now, what I didn't know at the time, which I wish I would have known, because this went on for at least a half hour. I mean, imagine a half hour of John Ziegler plowing into three or four steroid goons trying to get to where I was told I would be allowed to go to, but 
was no longer because it was all a big setup. And there's, you know, all these people are sweaty. And by the way, Inside Edition is there and they're videotaping the whole thing. What I didn't know at the time was that OJ himself was like five or six feet away from me behind a door hiding the whole time, waiting for this to end. Now, had I known this, we might still be there. <laughs> but I didn't know. Uh, and so it, here's how it ends. So you know, everyone's sweating, everyone's frustrated, you know, and the, the LAPD finally comes up to me, and this is going to be a shock. The LAPD, really not that enthusiastic about taking O.J. Simpson's side in any of this, which I knew would be the case. So I felt pretty confident that I had wide latitude about what I was going to be allowed to get away with because there was no way that the LAPD was going to do anything that was like pro-O.J., but they they said to me very nicely, "Hey, John, you think maybe you've done enough here? You think you think you can cut this out? You know, it'd be it'd be helpful to us if if we could end this." And I said, "Okay, fine." And I did that partially because I didn't know how effective I was being because I didn't I had no way of knowing even where OJ was. So anyway, we fit, I I stop. I don't get arrested. Inside Edition does a story on it. OJ signs his autographs. Uh, and, you know, I didn't feel that good about it, except for the fact that, at the time, except for the fact that, to my knowledge, this event was never duplicated again. And it also wasn't a particularly good success. I mean, it wasn't like there was a ton of people. There were some, but there was not a ton of people waiting to pay money for OJ Simpson double murderer's autograph. But I didn't think much of it again. Until... I don't know how long later, might have been a year later, something in that range, I see some headlines about O.J. Simpson being arrested because of some sort of memorabilia heist in a Las Vegas hotel room. And when I saw that, I immediately knew, holy shit, this has got to be Alfred Beardsley and maybe Thomas Riccio. And it turns out it was both of them. But how this went down is both hilarious and fascinating. Because Riccio, just like he had set me up, Riccio totally set me up at that horror convention. I'm convinced, and he's basically admitted this in interviews he's done subsequent to this, he set O.J. Simpson up. And he also, I think, was trying to screw with Beardsley, who he had disdain for partially because of what had happened in Burbank, partially because he knew that Beardsley was insane. Beardsley was insane. Beardsley believed at one point that the female mayor of Burbank was out to assassinate him. He was a disturbed individual. But I also, you know, it, my, my evolution on Beardsley was pretty significant. I'll get to that a little bit later on because I, I want to talk about what occurred at the parole hearing and what would have occurred at the parole hearing if Alfred Beardsley was still alive because the ratings for the parole hearing would have been exponentially greater if Alfred Beardsley actually testified because it would have been batshit crazy gold. But I digress. So, So here's what happens. Maybe because he was still pissed off at OJ because he had done two of these events and not made any money out of them and because he's a scoundrel to begin with, Riccio tells OJ 
that there's a guy with a lot of his stuff who I've set up a meeting with in a Las Vegas hotel room. And OJ's incensed because he wants his stuff back. And so he ends up getting a couple of goons off the street, tells them to pack heat. He's bragging the whole time during the day. We're, we're going we're gonna to intimidate these guys into giving me my stuff back. Meanwhile, Beardsley thinks he doesn't know he's meeting OJ, which is critical. Because if he had known he was meeting OJ, all of this changes. Because Beardsley loved OJ. Beardsley was to OJ Simpson what Sean Hannity is to Donald Trump. That's actually a pretty good comparison. That's how much Beardsley was willing to endure to suck up to OJ Simpson. It was in Sean Hannity, Donald Trump territory. So had Simpson known it was Beardsley, there wouldn't have been any need for any goons or guns. And he wouldn't have been all hyped up, ready to, you know, go all Ocean's Eleven on him. He, he would have just said, hey, Alfred, how's it going? Good to see you, buddy. I hear you got some of my stuff. Hey, can I sign a few footballs for you? And that would have been it. But Riccio had set both of them up knowing what each of them wanted. He knew Simpson wanted his stuff back. He knew Beardsley wanted to sell some OJ memorabilia. Beardsley wanted some money. And and Riccio creates, in almost an ingenious fashion, this highly combustible situation. You got eight hyped up guys and two guns and a recording device in a tiny little Las Vegas hotel room and hilarity and insanity ensues. So OJ does clearly commit several serious crimes, kidnapping and robbery, the, the, the deadly weapon and all that. I mean, so, the, the the charges are real, even though the whole thing was stupid and there really wasn't much of a victim. I mean, there was, it was a largely victimless crime because Beersley ends up calling me the next day after this happened at least a dozen times asking for my advice. And this goes to my evolution of thought on Beersley because here's a guy who I have disdain for, who I have mocked publicly, who I have bet and won and who I have told numerous times that he's a complete jackass for doing this for a double murderer. And he's call, in his greatest moment of need, he's calling me all day long asking for advice. And I realized, oh my God, it's because he has no friends and he thinks I'm his best friend. Because I mean, we had talked numerous times in the interim. He would call me like every month or two with some cockamamie scheme or idea or question. And I would always, I don't even know why, I felt sorry for him. So I just, I would kind of humor him, never realizing it was going to end up in, in this kind of a fiasco. But I ended up feeling bad for Alfred Beersley because I just think he was a guy who was a, a loser with a mental problem who wanted to be loved. And and the fact that he could get close to O.J. Simpson, a guy he admired, was really important to him. He really loved O.J. Even though I'm pretty sure he knew that O.J. had killed 
two people. It, it just, there's, there's certain people to whom they just don't care, which is just amazing, and it's a whole other story for another day. So Beardsley actually ends up doing his first live interview after this robbery with me on my old KFI show. And um, so I knew immediately that Simpson was going to get convicted. I didn't know what, what kind of sentence he was going to get. And I have no problem acknowledging that Simpson really got punished because he was known as a double murderer. I mean, that's obvious. Because even though these are serious crimes, <laughs> the reality is under normal circumstances, especially with a celebrity, this is, I don't know, a few months in prison. I, I, I have no way of knowing for sure, but nine-year minimum is is pretty stiff for a, a pretty victimless crime that, that was more silly than it was serious. But again, from a technical standpoint, no doubt he committed crimes. And by the way, no doubt he did take stuff that was not his. That's important to point out. Now, whether that was by accident or not, I don't know. But he did take stuff that was not his under any interpretation. So I was, for the last nine years, I felt some semblance of peace to the with the whole OJ thing. Because, well, it's not the way it should have happened, but at least he's in jail. The Goldmans get some satisfaction out of that, which they deserve. Justice didn't win, but maybe at least it was a draw. And then there was this week's parole hearing. Now, most legal experts believed he was going to get let out, and I was preparing myself for that. But I was still holding out some hope that somebody on this panel would find a reason to not grant him parole. And what was stunning to me was that there were actually plenty of reasons not to give O.J. Simpson parole based upon that hearing. And nobody took that opportunity. So this was obviously a done deal from before the hearing because, frankly, I don't know what O.J. would have done differently if he was trying not to get parole. It was that bad. He claimed... He's never been a violent person. He's lived a conflict-free life. He's never pulled a weapon on anybody. What? What are you talking about? It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, (laughs) you were never accused of pulling a weapon on anybody? You mean other than that time when you sliced off your wife's neck and you you killed an innocent bystander in Ronald Goldman with a knife and stabbed him dozens of times? He's delusional. He's taking no responsibility for anything he's done. He took no responsibility for the robbery. He did nothing but make excuses. Uh, And to me, there was no remorse. There was no reform. He's still exactly the same guy. He's an arrogant, jackass, delusional killer. It couldn't be more obvious. And yet, these parole people, their message to him when they gave him parole was, you know, slightly translated and, and shortened and paraphrased was basically this, Mr. Simpson, please do us a favor and try not to kill anybody else in the future, will you? Thank you. I mean, we would really appreciate that. That would be awesome if you could just not murder anyone else once we let you out. I mean, one of the guys was wearing a Kansas City Chief tie. Now, how your big moment on national television, every network's covering you, and you're going to wear an NFL tie to O.J. Simpson's parole hearing? It's just amazing the power of celebrity. I mean, you can't get any more notorious 
infamous than O.J. Simpson. He's the scum of the earth. He's killed two people. He wrote a book called If I Did It, effectively confessing, by the way, without even confessing. It's the worst confession of all time. You, you say, yeah, I basically did it, but then you don't even give the truth about how you did it because it's not the truth. It's, it's just amazing. And the media coverage was off the charts. You know what, what I found interesting about the media coverage? I don't know what the ratings were. My guess is they weren't that great, although they had to be decent because it was on everywhere. He had no choice but to watch it on any kind of news outlet. But it was almost like, um, you know, I, I was wondering what young people must have been thinking. Like, why the hell do we care about O.J. Simpson's parole hearing? You know, people under the age of 35 must have been like, huh? Why is this a story? But it, I, I, on uh, the old syndicated show with Leah Brandon, I always used to talk about this phenomenon called 70s celebrity, where there's nothing more powerful than being a celebrity in the 70s when there were four television channels and we weren't fragmented and 70s celebrity stays forever. Well, there's not that many relevant people who became celebrities in the 70s anymore. OJ is one of those. But he also became obviously huge in the 90s. And so 70s celebrity has been diluted now to where the media will take 90s celebrity. Because at least 90s celebrity, we didn't have nearly the fragmentation we have now, and there was no internet then. This, by the way, also goes to why Donald Trump ends up winning the presidency, because he's a 90s celebrity, 80s slash 90s. So his level of celebrity, because it was born in the 80s and 90s, is enormous. It can it basically almost can't be touched now, except by a couple of people, because in 2017, to become that in, that famous with this much fragmentation is almost impossible. And so you got an OJ level of fame, and then also there's the nostalgia portion of this. Almost everybody in the media making big decisions had their career greatly benefited by the O.J. Simpson case. So for them, this is like playing the hits. This is an oldie station. What's playing the hits? <laughs> so, so, oh my gosh, we get a chance to play our golden oldie, the O.J. Simpson case. And of course, the media is also thrilled that he's getting out. Why? Because I can guarantee you there's going to be another chapter here. There will be another chapter. We don't know what it's going to be, but the media will be thirsting for it. And there will be another chapter. And so I was very disappointed that he got parole. I was also disappointed that Alfred Beardsley died of a long illness in 2015. You know, it's amazing. In his obituary, the robbery isn't even mentioned. I mean, by far the most significant thing of his life, the robbery is not even mentioned in his obituary. So, but he dies, the poor guy, as insane as he was who just wanted to be loved and get some attention. The guy misses out on all of the attention last year over OJ Made America documentary, which he would have been a part of. And then he misses out on his opportunity to testify at OJ's parole hearing, which would have been just tremendous television. And I guarantee you what the result would have been. I mean, Alfred would have wholeheartedly supported OJ getting parole but he probably would have brought a football to the parole hearing and at the end of his testimony asked O.J. to sign it for him. And can you personalize it to Alfred Beersley? That's, that's what would have happened. 
at least, if not more, so uh, at the parole hearing if Alfred had not died in 2015. So that is, that's the full extended dance version story of my uh, interaction with O.J. Simpson and my small but significant role in this entire fiasco. I mean, if you ask Alfred Beardsley, granted, it's Alfred Beardsley, and you can't ask him because he's dead. And when, you ask, when he was alive, he was insane. But for whatever it's worth, if you ask Alfred Beardsley, without me and without that Burbank event, none of this happens. That's, that's how the whole thing went down. So I hope you've enjoyed the, this fascinating story as much as I've enjoyed having the catharsis of telling it. That's what makes this podcast a little bit different than any other podcast you're ever going to listen to. That's for sure. And that also brings an end to probably the, um, the best episode in the history of the world. According to Zig podcast, we got a, a heck of an hour. Number one with the news, an awesome interview with Glenn Beck in hour number two. And now the entire OJ Simpson story. Number three in hour number three, we'll be back next week until then. I only ask two things of you. Make sure you share this via social media and word of mouth and do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee. Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.